Welcome to another episode of Thoughts of a Techno Wizard. <laughs> it is 11:12 a.m. Saturday, January 7th, 2023. We are in the future, y'all. We are in the future today. Um, I mean, we've been in the future every day for the last history of time. But I don't know what I'm saying. God, what? Why, why do y'all listen to me? This is probably why this podcast is never growing. But <laughs> um, I have too much fun on here. So today I want to talk about critical thinking. Right? Um, I've been watching a lot of stuff this past week or so. Um, I mean, I'm always watching a lot of stuff, of course. But this past week particularly, there has been a, a really interesting uptick, at least in my opinion, in, in terms of, or in my Stuff that I've been watching, right? In terms of, like, concepts, I don't know, concepts, uh, um, events, you know, things in which people have been doing really silly things and then getting clapped back and then like, oh, what's going on? And then the people, you know, um, that their fan base is based on or whatever. You know what, let me, let me just be specific here because I'm, I'm all over the place. So, um, a couple things that have been, that have seen. Number one. Uh, Logan Paul, right? It's probably one of the biggest uh, examples of this, but not really one of the not, not really the main thing I want to talk about. But still, I want to bring this up. So, for those those that don't know, um, Logan Paul has been getting fried up by Coffeezilla. Coffeezilla is a uh, YouTuber who has been very much um, on the on the rampage for the past couple of years, really, but especially in the past year. Who have been um, uh, like holding scammers accountable, essentially, right? He's been doing a lot of great journalist work, in you know, showing all these scams, many of them to do with crypto, and showing them for what they are. And he's even helped to get a few of them um, put 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 in jail, right? Uh, which is crazy because you rarely ever see real accountability happening with these scammers. Um, and his biggest targets um, so far has been Logan Paul, right? So Logan Paul had this project called CryptoZoo, where he was saying something along the lines of um, creating, you know, a crypto project where you can you can, you can have these uh, basically basically like a Pokemon Go type of experience, essentially. <laughs> um, I'm not going to rehash the whole thing. You just go look it up. Um, Coffee. I highly highly suggest you look up Coffeezilla's videos. He did a three part series breaking down this whole scam thing. Um, there's a whole bunch of people that have been talking about this. Moist Critical, um, Asmund Gold, a bunch of folks. But um, yeah, this after after he released a video, the, these three part series. Logan Paul himself released a response video where he was saying essentially that. <laughs> He was saying that Coffeezilla is, is, is a liar and all this other stuff. Um, and then he's going to sue him and stuff like that. <laughs> and this was earlier this week, right? Um, he never, you know, Coffeezilla never reached out to him and um, all this other stuff, right? <laughs> and then not a couple days later. Um, well, today, you know, <laughs> I look up on, on YouTube and I see <laughs> Coffeezilla uh, it. Uh, saying Logan Paul called him to apologize to him and wrote in his discord or whatever 
that uh, he, he, he took down the video, he, he didn't, didn't mean to do all this, and all these other things, right? <laughs> he's not gonna sue, he's not gonna sue CoffeeZilla and stuff like that. Um, and it's hilarious because a lot of the commenters on CoffeeZilla's video, like, he, he doesn't, he's not actually taking accountability. Like, if you actually watch the, um, uh, um, goodness, Logan's video, right, original response video, he did not at all sound like any sort of, you know, like he was very aggressive with CoffeeZilla, right? Like you don't just make that turn around and say, oh, yeah, I wasn't wrong. Like, no, what almost certainly happened, like a lot of these commenters were saying, was that his lawyers <laughs> finally took it, right, finally saw this and said, you have no case. You better not sue this man because you will get demolished, right? They probably said something like that. Because that's what everybody else was thinking. Like, <laughs> I was thinking this when I watched that video. Well, I didn't watch it myself. I saw it through some reaction, right? I'm not going <laughs> to give Logan, you know, the direct views. Um, but, like, it was it was ridiculous, right? Like, this dude, Logan, was saying, oh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sue you, right? I'm gonna, you, better, you better be ready. I'm going to see you in the court, right? Or whatever, right? He was very, very... Um, like I said, aggressive, but also like in a in a uh, arrogant way, right? That that arrogant attitude that where you think you you have the rights, right? You or you think you have something. Um, and some people were saying, oh, it's because Logan has so much money, so much more money, right? It doesn't matter that he doesn't have a case; he can just hold CoffeeZilla up um, for a while, right? Wait, make him waste his money. But the problem with that approach <laughs> is that, especially for something so public, right? Not only will public appeal be really, um, really harmful for Logan, right, who, whose entire business, right, is based on how people see him and based on whether or not people give him the time of day, but also the type of evidence, right, the type of stuff that will come up in that court, in that case, will almost certainly be enough to really do serious damage, right, especially because CoffeeZilla is very well connected right he's connected now to a lot of other youtubers to a lot of people outside of youtube who were happy to see him taking down these scammers so no doubt that he will be able to get lawyers that will take the case pro bono because <laughs> they know that this type of strategy and they know they could probably make way more money off of actually defeating logan paul all right so I bring all this up not not to you know slam dunk on the case or anything like that but because despite all this right there were still some amount of people who were trying to give logan the benefit of the doubt right now it wasn't that much so that's why i'm not really focusing on this right it wasn't much um like the comments was was by and large against logan paul but my bigger my bigger thing here is the fact that logan paul still has 20 million subscribers or something like that right he still has an insane amount of audience and i asked myself why is that <laughs> why, why does logan paul still have so much quote-unquote clout right despite the fact that he has been known as the the you know the suicide guy <laughs> right remember that video he was laughing at this you know um the actual suicide force in japan right and despite all that and the, and the number of other stuff he's gotten into over the years, he still has a lot of clout. Why is that? Right? And then, on a, on a whole other note, but still related to this idea of critical thinking, 
I've been also watching, you know, stuff. Like I, I watched this great stream that FD did um, last night when he was uh, talking about Kidology. Right, this is channel called Kidology. That's not a super big channel. Um, I think they got a, like a hundred. 160,000 subscribers or something like that not that it really matters but the point here is that they're not big but nonetheless they they, they tout themselves as an apolitical person right um <laughs> and they made this entire video talking about um how the left needs to do better or something like that it's called kindly do better right and in his stream in fd stream he was specifically pointing out that Kidology has a, has some great points here, but by and large, there's a number of really really bad takes here that can can and have done serious damage to real people in real life. Furthermore, a lot of these arguments, right, are dog whistles for things like transphobia, right, for things like um, hatred in other ways, for things like even fascism, right. A lot of these points here don't really add up they don't really make a lot of sense right even though there are some good points in here there's a lot of other ones that's not good right and especially when you when you tout yourself as an apolitical person right what that really means <laughs> is that you're actually fairly conservative right and i'll, I'll break this down because i've talked about this before actually but he made a lot of great points in that way in that a lot of people who, who deem themselves moderates or central or central, you know, um, or, you know, again, apolitical and things like that are actually fairly conservative a lot of the times. All right. And again, I'll get into the specifics why, but I just want to bring these bring these up to the fore to kind of give you the environment at which I'm thinking about this critical thinking thing. Now, at the same time as all this, you know, on the other side, another token, um, there's a lot of things in, like, the design community, for instance, right? And, in fact, a lot of my own uh, um, recent lessons about critical thinking has come from my design mentor, uh, who's, well, basically my design mentor, <laughs> um, Debbie Levitt, and she has some great videos talking about practicing critical thinking and stuff like that, where she has a framework saying, you know, is this something... I think it's, uh, is it meaningful? Is it helpful? Is it actionable? All right? Um, because in a lot of the design community, but also just, just business in general, like LinkedIn in general and stuff like that, there's a lot of quote-unquote advice and, you know, processes or other things out there that often get a huge amount of attention, right? For instance, um, design thinking. <laughs> you may have heard the term, right? Design thinking is notoriously terrible of a pro of, of an idea right because it's it it masquerades as something that is so you know um so practical or something right like that right and a lot of people you know really hold um hold this close right they say i've done design thinking and, it's, and it works and all this other stuff but when you actually delve into it you see that the actual formula the actual things that design thinking is saying is by and large pretty much useless right um and oftentimes any success that you get from it is almost either consequential or from you doing a process that's not actually design thinking and is actually you know more of the the core principles of design or any other th type of thing right a similar example is with um agile 
UX, right? Um, or lean UX, goodness, there it is. Um, or even agile too, right? Like agile itself is a, is a pretty good idea, but the problem is with the implementation of agile principles, especially in a lot of, a lot of big companies, right? Where they're not actually doing agile, right? Where they, they, they claim they're having sprints and standups, but <laughs> the meetings are hour long or two hours long even. I've seen it, right? It, it, it's kind of, it's really ridiculous. Um, but yeah, like these are just some of the many examples in which people really, really take these things for at face value and don't bother actually thinking or, you know, giving it much, you know, not, they don't really give it much critical thought. They don't really, you know, um, take these things apart and, and see how it, it can be practical or what the, where the depth is or how to apply it or, you know, what its origin is and things like that. Another example I've seen recently, right? Just this morning, um, I was looking at Explain Like I'm Five. It's a pretty good Reddit. One of my <laughs> only Reddits I regularly, you know, um, look at. Um, and one of the questions is, uh, how, why don't we clone people, right? Now, there were actually a lot of pretty good explanations for why we don't clone people. But there were also a lot of really bad takes here. <laughs> and people were like, oh, yeah, it's just a, well, the, the major reasons why we don't clone people is that we do have a lot of the technology, right? Um, maybe it's not perfected yet, but it's not unreasonable to think that we can't, you know, perfect this technology. The bigger problem is moral and ethical, right? And I guess legal as a, as a you know, um, case for that. But a lot of the people in the comments was like, oh, it, it's just a moral thing, just ethical. Those, those things change. It doesn't really matter, right? Um... And even those who were saying, who were explaining why it's a moral or ethical problem, didn't really get, uh, you know, enough into depth as to why cloning is is a serious ethical issue. It's not just some, oh, people will change their minds once they evolve their tastes or something like that, right? Like, there's a difference between ethical considerations, like you know, like here in America, like a lot of people consider abortion, you know, an ethical thing uh, or moral thing, where they say, oh no abortion because it, uh, it kills human life or some bullshit like that right i'm not gonna get into all to, <laughs> to all that today uh, i've already made a whole you know thing about it um but that is an example of a kind of i will call it a surface level moral issue that's that's more based on how you feel rather than actual you know hard moral <laughs> you know understandings here right and just real quick the reason why i say this is because with abortion for instance if you if you um make if you ban abortion essentially right you don't make it legal that doesn't actually stop abortions <laughs> right because for the longest time in human history people have always been doing abortions right because it's it's practical <laughs> if they cannot raise the, the the child that they're having and they don't rightfully so trust the adoption system which has been it's very it's not a great system at all um and for a number of other reasons right they will take it into their own hands right it's often it's actually the same kind of uh reason as to why banning a lot of drugs is completely meaningless right as a moral issue because even if you don't personally like drugs right um whether it be as something like weed or something like you know crack cocaine or something like that right like it doesn't really matter because people will people will still do it 
the more practical way of dealing with these things is creating a system in which people can either take it safely, right, or um, get help, <laughs> right, when they're stuck on like in a, in a lot of, um, I think it's like the Nor Nor Norwegian Swedish, you know, that area of things that they they legalize a lot of these drugs, even the hard drugs. And then they make it so that when they find people who are strung out on these drugs, they bring them into a facility where they can help them get off of these drugs, right? And because of that, they have way, 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 way less people actually on the drugs, right? Versus here in America where it's a ba- almost an epidemic, right? This is, the, this is the example of moral problems or ethical issues or whatever that are practical and non-practical. Right, that are surface level versus actually deep. That actually gets to the core of the problem. Right? If you have a moral issue that is surface level, that's just because you don't like it, and you just try to ban this thing because you don't like it, then that's not really gonna, you know, be effective. Right? And and if anything, it's gonna create more problems. If you actually care about human life, for example, then you would see that abortion actually helps. Oftentimes, because a lot of the people who probably should have been aborted, right, or the parents who probably should have aborted, end up creating terrible people, right, because they hate their children. They didn't want to have them. And so their children end up disenfranchised. Their children end up being raised by hateful parents or controlling parents. And, you know, many of the serial killers out there were, <laughs> were raised by parents who didn't hate, who didn't like them. Right, who didn't have the space or ability or inclination to actually raise them up properly, right? Um, so oftentimes, right, these moral problems go much deeper. But if you stay at the surface level, you're not really going to be doing anything. So similar to this cloning issue, right, many people... Um, didn't understand that, oh, it's, it's not just a, oh, because people don't like cloning. Right? Oh, because there's just some, some legal stuff here. No, it's because there's a really deep ethical and moral issue here, right? Where the fact is that you're not cloning somebody as they are. You're cloning somebody, somebody's DNA, <laughs> right? Which is basically like just making another, a twin, right? And that twin is its own person. It has its own uh, memories, experiences, feelings, and things like that. And because of that, it can't just take, you know, what you're doing. Right? You, it's not like you like some people saying, "Oh, we, we can make a clone of, of an athlete or a, you know or a business person, right?" And continue their their work or Einstein even, right? But that wouldn't actually be true <laughs> because the clone who might share some of their personality and maybe some of their talents, right? Some of their biological based talents at least, if they're not raised in a similar enough environment, which is almost certainly going to be the case, right? They're not going to be raised in a similar environment. They're almost certainly not going to come out the same way, right? And the only case of this that I, that I saw was that was somewhat adequate, I think, was a, was an example of, like, if we could somehow get enough DNA to, to you know, um, um, to clone someone like Einstein, right, whose brain was literally different, right? maybe and and raise them in a really good environment right where they had a really great out um childhood and all this other stuff right and they could you know and they could choose for themselves what they want to get into right maybe they might even maybe that'd be a better chance of them 
maybe not continuing Einstein's work, but, but doing something on that level, right, in whatever role they take. And that is probably the only way I see cloning to be any sort of, you know, possibility, right, any sort of ethical um, possibility. But by and large, the problem is that that, that you know, um, that's like the happy path, right? That is highly unlikely to ever happen, <laughs> at least not in our current society. Because the overall environment of our current society makes it such that it's far, far, far more likely that this person, this Einstein, right, this Einstein clone, will be raised up to just, you know, do the same things that everybody else is doing, right? Which is trying to survive <laughs> under capitalism. And if anything, that person will probably use their um, talents to make the, the, the capitalistic system ever more efficient, right? This is a huge problem with like a lot of the, um, a lot of the colleges and you know uh, consultancy programs, right? Where a lot of the talented students that go to, um, uh, not MIT, well, well, yeah, even MIT, but um, these other schools that focus on like uh, what you call this, this static. Goodness, like higher level math, but that has to do with eco- economics and things like that, or business schools. There we go, Harvard, Yale, you know these type of things. They go into, um, you know, these these big time uh, uh, business consultancy agents, right? Your your McKin- McKinsley's or whatever it's called, right? Um, your Accenture's and all these other things, and and in there, all they do is take all that all that talent, all that intelligence, and turn it towards making these systems ever more, you know, effective, right? Some in another, you know. Um, system I saw, not another system, goodness, another of these threads, not, not related to this cloning thing, but another problem, I forgot what the, um, explain like I'm five uh, question was, but they were talking about how <laughs> they, they used to work at this, uh, school, a program or something like that, where they saw a whole bunch of PhD, um, theses on how to make, uh, gambling and, you know, uh, essentially parasitic, uh, systems software ever more efficient <laughs> right they, they they had these um research articles where these phd students and phd phd holders or whatever do- doctorates were basically very proud of how they could you know optimize uh the 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 how much money you can get from a whale right how much money you can get from a person who has a lot of money to the point where they get where they are you know constantly feeding into the system and you know basically using gambling tactics right using um psychological manipulation tactics to get them to constantly um put more money into the system right like so (laughs) a lot of these incredibly intelligent people in our current society are not being you know used or called to businesses or ideals or problem solving that is actually making the world a better place Instead, they're called to making more profits. And in fact, you see that with things like effective altruism, right? This idea that, oh, uh, it's more effective to get a job which pays you a whole bunch of money, which is almost certainly, you know, uh, working at a huge company as a software developer or at an oil refinery or something like that, you know, um, at one of these places that are very <laughs> immoral, right, that are... That are um, substantially making the world a worse place right working at facebook for instance right that will pay their developers uh 250,000 or even up to a million dollars a year 
all right? It's far, they're saying that it's far more effective to work at these places, make a whole bunch of money, and then use that money to, you know, um, pay on these nonprofits, right? Pick which nonprofit. And then they even get worse in this, right? So, because it's not just, oh, just pick whatever nonprofits seem good to you. It's pick whatever nonprofits seem most optimized to their conditions, right? And the problem with this approach, even though it sounds, look, again, right? This is why I'm talking about critical thinking. On a surface level, it sounds like it might make some sort of sense, <laughs> right? Like, yes, of course, you should give to the nonprofits who are actually, you know, um, measurably doing, doing more, right? But the problem with this is that, <laughs> is that the very simple case is, is rather, it's the very simple um, realization, right? That the things that we measure are often not really the things that are actually on the ground good, right? For instance, there's a lot of nonprofits, like a lot of the big nonprofits you know, right? Like Red Cross, for instance. Um, you know, they might be measuring. Um, uh, well, I don't want. I want. I don't want to say that, right? I'll, I'll use a. I use a a, a, um, a general example rather than something like Red Cross. Because <laughs> I don't have the, the data in front of me, right? So I don't want to misrepresent. But in a general example, and you can you can see this if you do your own research into these things. Like look at the the nonprofits who were you know supposed to be in charge of Haiti, for example. Um, but what a lot of these nonprofits do is oh they're saying they're measuring you know how many people they can help, and they measure that by how many people they hire, or you know how much um, money they're they're bringing in, right? Or how much money they're even even how much money they're spending. Right. And what that often turns out to be on the ground is that they just hire a whole bunch more people. Right. Um, regardless of whether or not those people are actually in that place. Like, for instance, if a nonprofit is in Haiti, they don't hire a bunch of people in Haiti. Right. They would hire people outside of Haiti to bring them in. Right. And of course, those people have to live somewhere. So they spend on housing for those people rather than the people actually in Haiti. Right. Or even if they do hire people locally right in that space they take them out of you know their their home communities right and put them in these you know middle class or rich you know kind of neighborhoods and things like that and it creates a classist you know kind of system over there right um another example of this is is where you know they would take you know a lot of the the supplies that are supposed to be going to this place and put it to the people who they think deserves more rather than the people who actually need it, right? So oftentimes it goes towards the people who are already, you know, it feeds into like the bribery system, right? The people and the, the, the officials and the people in power and stuff like that, rather than the people on the ground, right? And you see this in many, many, many of these quote unquote third world countries. What people don't realize is that the reason a lot of these places are quote unquote third world and quote unquote developing, right? Is because a lot of our you know, cons the consequences of our actions in the quote unquote first world and a lot of the growth, right, that we enjoy in the first world comes from the exploitation of labor and resources from these other places, right? A lot of the reason why capitalism was so quote unquote successful, right, in the uh, 19th century, for instance, and the 20th century was because it 
was essentially colonization, right? It took a lot of the resources in Africa, in, you know, the Middle East, in, you know, South, uh, uh, South America and things like that. It took these resources and funneled them to these uh, global north areas, right? And so we in the global north were able to um, experience a huge amount of growth and all these resources. But where was that resources coming from? Right. It came from these other places. <laughs> All right. And even here, you still see a huge amount of uh, class difference. Right. Because um, the poor people get less access to those resources than everybody else. And there's a lot of these other things that you can you know, break down. But the point here is that there are a lot of things in which a lot of people take for granted. And don't dig deeper. And that really, really, really harms our entire society. Another example I want to talk about from Kidology. Um, they were mentioning things like, um, shoot, I forget the exact example. So I really should write things down when I think about them. <laughs> um, let's see if I can remember them. I think there's one about like uh, transgender, you know, type of things, trying to relate it to transracialism, which is completely ridiculous right saying that oh they're both a uh um a social construct well, excuse me a social construct and therefore they're you know fairly similar right you can kind of equate them together but you really cannot right because the entire construct of race for instance right is made up for the specific purpose of disenfranchising people who would otherwise share a lot of similarities right if you look into um, Bacon's Rebellion, of course, right? A lot of the poor, you know, European folks like the Irish and things like that were working with a lot of the um, enslaved black peoples, right? Coming from Africa. I should say African peoples, right? And they saw that this was gonna be, uh, <laughs> turning out to be a really successful rebellion, right? Because a lot of these people, there were way more, for, way more of them and they were able, they were going to be able to over you know overthrow their uh uh masters and so what did they do <laughs> they killed a lot of them first of all right <laughs> um but before the rebellion spread they said oh you know you you um irish folks or whatever you're you're known as the white people right you're like us and you can come and get some land and you can get all these things but you but these black people are you know they're they're lesser than right they're they're black they're animals or whatever right I'm simplifying this, but you can go look this up yourself. Bacon's Rebellion is just one example. But this itself comes from a, a um, an even older, kind of deeper um, political tool here, right? Because we have to realize that in across a lot of places, especially um, in Europe, but also in Asia, there is this idea that that colored, right, means poorer, right, means less than. And the reason is because in these hierarchical societies, the richer people, the more well-off people, the more powerful people did not have to do manual work, right? They did not have to do manual labor. So they just sit inside all day. <laughs> and because of that, they tended to be paler. And the people who worked outside, who actually did all the manual labor, they got darkened, of course, right? Maybe they weren't black. They weren't dark-skinned. But they were definitely darker. And in fact, this is, this is why you see fair-skinned, right? Fair, 
What does that mean? It means good looking, right? That means um, th 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 like this has a, 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 um, a preferable, you know, countenance and things like that, right? Like <laughs> the very idea of white being better, a fair skin, of paleness being seen as a good thing is fundamentally a classist ideology, right? Fundamentally a hierarchical institution or hierarchical tool, right, to build that institution. It comes from the fact that in hierarchical societies, once again, essentially rich, powerful people did not have to do labor <laughs> while everybody else did. And so the people who did labor were, were tended to be darker skin, rougher skin, rougher features even, right? And so when they saw a bunch of uh, really dark people <laughs> and what they called Ethiopia at the time, which is basically Africa, um, when they saw the Ethiopians... They said, oh, these all must be, you know, laborers or, you know, dark people or whatever, right? Um, and so that, you know, ideology kind of played into it. And on top of that, because Africa is so huge, right? You did have some places where, for instance, you know, you would have stories of people practicing cannibalism, right? And maybe you did have people doing that. I highly doubt it. What actually probably happened it was that there's probably some people who had some religious practice where they imbibed some blood or something like that, which was not uncommon, right? You also seen the same thing happen in Europe and Asia and a lot of these other places where, you know, for instance, in Europe, they had bloodletting. <laughs> they thought that would clear your humors or whatever, right? And so they would bleed people and <laughs> use that you know to, to to solve a bunch of things and some people would 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 drink the blood of younger people like we do today like peter Thiel does the, today because he realized that the, maybe the blood of younger people would make you younger all this other stuff right but nonetheless when they see some of these things in africa they would make these uh generalizations as oh, all these all these black these colored people are you know barbarians and this that and the other right uncivilized and stuff like that and you had a lot of these types of ideas going around right and it could probably break this down even further you know um the the muslims for instance in the middle east had uh, a similar type of caste system type of thing there but the point here is that these ideas of racism are are fundamentally based on a different social construct than the ideas of gender Gender is a completely different type of construct that is just as deep. It, well, it's probably even deeper. Yeah, it is deeper than race, right? Because some of the um, first uh, hierarchical institutions, right, comes from gender disparities. And like I mentioned before in my, my podcast about um, where uh, sentience came from, intelligence came from, right? We showed there's a lot of evidence today that shows that um, places that were more uh, social, right, tended to be more feminine, feminine, right, because there were a lot of, if if the female species of of, uh, of a species, right, is weaker, is physically weaker, then it behooves them to come together, right, to fend off from the the physically biologically um, uh, stronger male species, and the fact that humans have done this for 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 such a long time before we were humans right me is, is why our male of our species is not that much bigger than the female right and many other mammals and other types of animals 
the disparity is much larger, right? Like the males are 100%, 200% bigger than the females of the species. But in ours, that's not so. The males are typically only like 15% bigger than the female of the species. So there's a, a, a you can see that there's a very clear difference between um, um, gender disparity in other animals than us. And that shows us that there is some very, very strong um, social factors, right, that cause this disparity to become so negligible, right? And of course, other animals, the disparity goes the other way, right? Or there's no physical disparities, there's more a color disparity, like with a lot of birds, right? A lot of the males are more colorful than the females because the males are the ones dancing and doing all the stuff, right? Um, but yeah, the point here is that for humans, for hominids, it ended up being that we created these social relationships that created more space for intellect, for non-physical power, for non-physical strength, right? That allowed us to have this um, intelligence that we have today, right? That allowed us to use language as a tool for power or for, you know, um, communication or whatever, as opposed to just, you know, um, fighting <laughs> or, you know, just uh, resource allocation, right? So all that to say that the gender disparities amongst humans um, for a long time has a, has a uh, social relation, has a social role, right? And in fact, a lot of the gender, uh, a lot of the problems with gender, especially today, is that there is no distinction between gender appearance and, you know, sexual uh, biology and gender roles, right? Just because you might appear as some gender or sex or whatever does not necessarily mean that you should be labeled or be put in this gender role box. And that is one of the, to me, that is one of the biggest problems with gender today is that was well, it's, it's a little bit less of a problem today but it's still a pretty big problem right is that we have this idea that because you you are seen as quote unquote a man right or a woman then you are you should be you should like these certain things and you should do these certain things right it really belies the the fact that even though we do see tendencies right among different sexes or genders or whatever those are just that tendencies <laughs> they're not ironclad rules right they're not laws of nature or whatever right they're extremely flexible extremely subjective extremely dependent upon your environment and all these other factors right so when somebody is doing is 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 trying to switch their genders for instance or just appear as another gender right people get all up in arms and act like they're about to you know flip up the whole social uh, um uh rule board or game board or whatever um there's this idea that even today uh that being masculine means that you have to have these certain traits right and this is where the idea of toxic masculinity comes from comes in from it's it's, it's a realization that um there are there may be some masculine versus feminine type of tendencies and traits or ideas or whatever right 
but that does not mean that you have to then do these other things and nor does that mean that you have to tag on right these other things that are not so good for instance with a lot of toxic masculinity we have this idea of the clinical alpha male right that you have to be super dominant and aggressive and you know um that you don't have feelings <laughs> right that you're not you're not emotional like women are and all these other things but all of that is completely bunk right there's no scientific evidence for any of this right in actuality even the idea of an alpha male was itself like i mentioned many times before was not a real <laughs> you know it was a mistake in a lot of the scientific things um, and, and the fact that we still use this terminology is really is really insane. Um, even though now we might try to say sigma male and all this other stuff, you know, it's still the same. Um, still based on the same misunderstanding, right? On the same um, mistake. But the fact that a lot of people today, you know, kind of take this for granted means that they f- easily fall prey into what happens with folks like Andrew Tate, right? I remember somebody in the stream was saying, oh, the left needs more people that spit game, that talk about, you know, how to get women or how to make money and things like that. <laughs> and even though I can understand where they're coming from, the fact of the matter is that's the whole point, right? Is <laughs> the very idea that you can, you know, create some self-help advice that will instantly help you get 10 women and, and make a bunch of money and all this other stuff is inherently, right, um, in service to this broken, oh, not even broken, but this oppressive system, to the system that is designed, right, over years and years and over decades, over millennia of hierarchical institutions, right, the system that is designed to oppress some people for the benefit of others. That is designed to exploit people. That is designed to have this dominant versus submissive. I don't want to use it like that, right? Because there's a lot of people claiming claiming back the, the term dominance and showing that it's not. It doesn't have to be used in, in the way that it's yet that that it is today. But you get my point, right? Is that this current system that we live under, that we live in, this environment that we live in, is designed to do exactly that. To make you believe that if you do these things, right, you can get this result. <laughs> and But don't look at how, how it happens, right? Don't look at the consequences. Don't look at, you know, um, the efficiency or, you know, don't look at the, the, the fact that you're actually exploiting other people. Or don't look at the fact that, you know, all these other things, all these... Uh, consequences of these actions right for instance if i give you some self-help advice for how to get girls right how to get women am i actually teaching you how to be a better person right or am i trying to give you cheat codes to how to game the system <laughs> right nine times out of the 99 times out of 10 as i like to say right this quote-unquote self-help advice is actually giving you how to cheat the system which is really just how to be an oppressor, <laughs> right? It's really not even how to cheat the system. It's how to use the system. Because, again, the system is meant to be um, used in this way. So if I give you advice on how to get women, I am explicitly and implicitly at the same time saying that 
this system that we live under is you know um the rightful system right is how life should be is how life is and this is how you should use that system to your benefit right and people people i know people will be like oh no no you know well, that's just not what i'm saying blah 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 but that's what's actually happening right that's what you're doing right i love this one of the quotes in here um fd or somebody on the on the stream was saying you know a, a big problem with a lot of conservatism and the the right and things like that and even the parts of the left that don't really understand the left is that it's not about what you say right it's not all about what you say it's all it's mostly about what you do right and the consequences of what you're doing right so you might say that you're for freedom or you're 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 for you know the the health of 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 uh men and things like that and you're you're not trying to you know disparage women or anything like that you're just trying to for instance like this one example where people are like oh why don't you hold these women accountable right <laughs> right as if and they, they, as if they're trying to say right it's not that i hate women or anything like that it's just that i think women have done wrong and they should be held accountable for their actions right it sounds like a somewhat reasonable explanation. Well, why don't you hold them accountable accountability right <laughs> but again, there's no critical thinking there. There's no depth of thought. There's no realization that a lot of women are raised in this environment where their very life, right, their very existence is 99 times out of 10 being used as a tool of exploitation, as a, as a um, control mechanism, right? Their very existence is being used to control or as a, as, to consume, right? Their very existence is being used as a as a commodification for consumption, as a to use less big words, right? Whenever just think about how, how a lot of boys think about girls, right? Especially as they go through adolescence, they see them as a you know um, a a thing to pursue, right? To, to get sex. <laughs> just I'm gonna have to be explicit here, right? If you want to fuck a woman, right? You you think about oh she got big ass, you know, <laughs> you know stuff like that. You you're you're seeing this this other person, this human being, as a set of components, <laughs> right? That you can use, that you can get pleasure from, right? The fact that it's such a such a fundamental part of our language shows you that it's a fundamental part of our of our system of our environment and which encourages boys and men to exploit women and girls and everybody else too even themselves right there's so much of our environment that encourages this really terrible dehumanization of other people and so when you say, oh, hold women accountable, what are you actually saying? Because oftentimes these women have had to evolve, right? Have had to, I don't want to say evolve, but adapt, right? They've, they've been infatuated. I'm not infatuated, but they've been, um, goodness, indoctrinated. There we go. To believe that this is how they, they, they should live their life, right? They've had to survive, Right, an environment where at any point in time they could be sexually assaulted. All right, or worse. At any point in time, because even though a man may may not be two hundred percent stronger, they're still fifteen on average fifteen percent stronger. 
so they can physically get their way. But also on top of that, because our society, right, by and large, even after, you know, the whole, um, this whole woke ideology or whatever, even today, <laughs> the vast amount of women still are not heard, right? If they say they were assaulted or anything like that, a lot of people still won't believe them, especially in our places of power, right? Our police system, where a lot of them, a lot of police won't really press charges or say, oh, there's no evidence and things like that, right? The very fact that you need evidence, <laughs> right, is inherently biased towards sexual assault because a lot of sexual assault doesn't leave evidence, <laughs> right? So you literally can't even press charges or you can't even pursue a case and hope to really win unless you yourself have some leverage, right? So the very fundamental aspects of our society, of our law, of our legal system, for instance, right, is biased towards getting away with things like sexual assault or getting away with, you know, a number of these other types of abuses and exploitations, right? And this is what people don't understand. It's like, wh what are you saying when, when you say hold women accountable? I'm not saying that women can't, you know, um, be bad people or can't do bad things or anything like that. Obviously not, right? But when you say hold women accountable, all right, what do you mean? Who are you talking to? Who are you talking about? Oftentimes, people might have a specific woman in their life that they have in, in, <laughs> in mind when they say something like that. But they're saying it as if all women, you know, need to be held accountable for this one woman's action. Right. But on the flip side, people say, oh, doesn't that apply to men. But this is the whole point in power differentials. Right. And in, 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 in institution. Going back to race as well. The reason why you say hold men accountable as opposed to women is because by and large, men still have more power at large. And really, when we say hold men accountable, right, what you what we really mean is showing is being able to show men the power that they initially have, that they already have. Right. The privilege that you already have, the ability to um, harm that you already have. That many, many women either do not have or have to fight to get. And the fact is that a lot of women are raised such as, such that a lot of their, you know, negative, you know, for behaviors, for instance, right? For instance, women that may manipulate a man in order to, to get what they need or get what they want, right? A lot of that is, once again, adaptations for them to, in order to survive. Because they were raised, oftentimes, in an environment where the men around them were extremely aggressive or this, that, and the other. Or the only ones that had access to certain resources. And so they had to learn how to do these things in order to access those resources that men already had in their environment. Right? This is the thing that people do not understand about a lot of these, um, the problem with institutions, right? This is the fundamental problem with many institutions, with, with the idea that we can have this a hierarchical society where some people have more power than others and all these other things, right? The fundamental problem with a lot of hierarchy is that you have these, um, these, not internal, goodness, um, 
good what the oh i'm always losing the words right when i'm out here right <laughs> but you have these these uh examples of power right goodness what's the word i want to use here i'm so mad right now <laughs> i was on a roll with that too i think <laughs> but you have this this power that is internal to yourself right that that you can use even without thinking about it right there are certain people certain types of people right who have certain types of power without even having to think about it without without even having to do anything to get that power or to use that power you already have leverage you already have some amount of bias towards you in this system but it's extremely complex right it's not so simple as oh you're a white man and therefore you know you're you're better off than everybody else no that's not the case is that you are a white man therefore you have some amount of power that you can exploit right that you can use and there will be consequences that you won't even see <laughs> right you might not even realize the consequences that comes from your abuse or use you don't have to abuse it you can just use it right there will be consequences from that that you won't see but that still will be real and felt and there's, this is why it's very tricky, right? Because you can't turn around and say, oh, all white people are terrible, or this, that, and the other, right? All men are terrible, all men are bad, you know, fuck man. It, that doesn't help, right? This is why I also really love FD and Khadijah and Bowie and things like that, because they, they point out that these types of hatred, this type of reactionary, you know, type of uh, responses do not help. Right, this idea of right fragility is is dumb. Right, this idea of you know um, man hating is dumb. Right, it doesn't help because again, a lot of this power, a lot of this leverage is invisible, is not even conscious. It's not a choice. Right, it's something that just happens as a factor of this incredibly bias you know i'm going to say that incredibly um hierarchical society right but that does bring me to another point i wanted to talk about too another one of these you know uh things i want to bring up is is bias right i do use the term bias um often uh um uh, with a negative outlook but i'm trying to help fix that too because there's there's a very again there's this very real thing and I've talked about this as well right where people like to think of bias or being subjective as inherently bad but it's not that's just how the world works <laughs> right we as humans are inherently biased right we are biased towards what we can see right what we can perceive we are biased towards how we think Right, we we literally see the world as subjectively because of who we are as as a conscious agent. Like we can only see things from our perspective, and all of our scientific experiments, for instance, is does not necessarily make this unbiased. It just makes our bias more uh, obvious, right? It makes it more clear how we are biased, and maybe we can maybe we can begin to correct for that, or you know, just navigate better for that. Um, I'm at 55 minutes. I'm I'm gonna make another section and just keep going because I have a, I still have a lot to say. 
<laughs> these long podcasts, man. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. So when we, when we say bias, right? What, again, what do we actually mean? Oftentimes, I see people talking about um, saying, "Oh, you're biased. That's why you're oh, blah 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 blah." <laughs> but we're all biased, right? And this is going back to what I was saying in the last section. This is the problem with a lot of "quote unquote" apolitical people or central people or moderate people, right? They claim that they're just being in the middle, that they're just being unbiased, but that's not true. What's actually happening is that they're just being blind to their bias. Right. And in fact, there's really great, you know, again, scientific evidence here. Right. There's some great uh, um, think about I forgot what episode it was. That I talked about this, but this I think it, it was a Vsauce um, video that was that was asking, you know, can we ever be unbiased or, you know, is bias bad or something like that. Right. And they were showing how a lot of really great research shows that it's better to be biased, but to then look at other things from the other bias. Right. Or from other biases. Right, because oftentimes it's not always binary, right? Um, and what they were saying is that uh, if if you are pretending or if you're saying that you're unbiased, right? They showed that researchers or any type of people, right, that that claim that they're being unbiased in their research or in their work or in whatever they're doing, oftentimes, right, more or majority of the time, have far more <laughs> um, really concerning. Uh, biases in their results than people who are explicitly taking one side right and this is for obvious reason when you when you really think about it it's because when you claim that you're being unbiased what's actually happening in your brain right is that you have some way of seeing the world and you think that that way of seeing the world is the correct way and therefore you're going to be you know creating an argument based around this way of seeing the world Regardless of whether or not that way of seeing the world is actually right, versus if you are taking an argument and you 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 are saying that yes you are biased right this is your view, right then you're going to create an argument based around your bias, based around your perspective of the world and because you explicitly pointed out that this is your perspective, you have to also recognize that there are other perspectives <laughs> that may or may not be right. And so you're going to be, not only will you be doing your best to make your argument very sound, but in doing so, you're also going to have to take into consideration what other people think and what those perspectives are in order for you to make your argument stronger. And then on top of that, right, the people who, what's what's way more efficient is that the people who take their bias, take their biased view, their biased perspective, their research or whatever that is geared towards one way, they then compare it with somebody who took their research in the other way, right? Who had another bias. And then they compare and contrast and they take the best of both, right? And that ends up being way, way, way more accurate, more efficient, uh, and just better all around than the person who thought that they were doing unbiased work. And you see, I'm, I'm sure you probably see this every day in your life, right? If you talk to people who who, who think they're being Unbiased, who think they're being central, right? Who think they're taking both sides. Oftentimes, <laughs> what they almost always end up doing is just picking out things from either side that they like. All right, they pick out things that you know 
seem correct to them <laughs> from either side. Because oftentimes in either side or any other side, I hate, I hate just saying either, right? Like it's, it's almost always going to be more than just two sides. But anyways, the people who are central or who are moderate or apolitical or whatever, unbiased, right? Objective. What they almost always end up doing is just picking out things that they like among every other side and saying, you know, oh yeah, this is what this is what this is the proper way. But in doing so, what they're actually doing is just creating their own side. <laughs> right? They're just creating their own bias. But the, the the bigger problem is that they're blind to that bias. Because they think they're being objective, they can't be reasoned with. Right. This is one of the bigger problems with things like religion. Right. A lot of religious folks think that they're being objectively true. Right. This is why there's a difference between, um, in my opinion, in my opinion, spiritual people versus religious people. Right. A lot of spiritual people recognize that this is just their way of viewing, you know, the world. Right. They have this um, um otherworldly view of the world where they think there's other things out there right they, they're not quite sure what <laughs> but this is how they do it right they have, may have some rituals they might have some traditions whatever but this is just how they do it that's it right versus a lot of religious people think that this is the way the world should be or is and that everybody else is just wrong <laughs> and they just have to show people this is the right way to do it right and I know this is not necessarily true for all religious people um but by and large, this is what I've seen, right? This is my bias, right? <laughs> With the difference between religious and spiritual people. But generally, right? This is also the difference between people who think that they're being moderate or apolitical. Or people who think that they're being anti-SJW, but also anti-Nazi uh, um, um, or whatever, right? So that they think they're being, you know... Uh, Objective. I think they're just being in the middle, taking, looking at both sides. <laughs> but what they're actually doing is just <laughs> taking their own bias and just trying to, you know, uh, correct or, or confirm that bias. Right. And oftentimes, because our entire society is already strongly biased towards the right, towards conservatism, towards um, um, hierarchy. Right. Then that means that if you are in the middle, then you're already on the right. <laughs> Right, you're already on the right. You're already conservative. You're already hierarchical in some way, and you'll see this, right? If you talk to your average person, nine times out of ten, maybe even ninety-eight times out of ten, right? <laughs> They're gonna have some ideologies, some ways of viewing the world that are inherently traditionalist or conservative or um, hierarchical. To say that, to say that, because I, again, I don't even like the idea of just conservatism being bad, right? I mentioned before when I was uh, talking about this, like almost almost a year ago now, I think, is that I think there is there, if you divorce conservatism from where it is today, right? Just the fundamental idea of conservatism, meaning to conserve certain traditions that are really good, right? That are very beneficial. Um, that can be a good thing, right? That can be very important, and you see this in a lot of uh, cultures that are extremely. Um, uh, old, right? A lot of the hunter-gatherer cultures, for instance, that can date their rituals back, like the Zoishan, the ah, goodness, um, the Kala, Kalahari people, right? The people in the Kalahari Desert, they can date a lot of their traditions and rituals and beliefs back like a hundred thousand years, right? 
back a hundred even the, like there's people even in Australia that can date their um their stories back thirty thousand even a hundred thousand years to before they were in Australia through these oral traditions right because they have these conservative values that are extremely um um relevant i guess <laughs> i guess is a good way of putting it right but the difference between those systems in in our version of conservatism in like places like america or the global north is that those aren't institutions right those aren't systems of power in which the people who believe these things inherently have more power than everybody else no those are simply cultural you know um knowledge that anybody can participate in all right and i know there's going to be some differences some of some of them do have some uh institutional power or whatever but by and large many of them don't and this is what makes that conservatism so much more so much better than what we have today because it's not blindly looking at whatever is going to support the current power system right instead it's looking at you know what are what is actually relevant right what what knowledge and wisdoms will actually help people today and how can i tell this story that has helped many people in the past today right this is why oral traditions are so much more powerful in a way or i i should say persistent but also powerful because of their persistence than a lot of written you know um stories is because a lot of the oral systems, a lot of the oral knowledge can be passed along and translated into the current day's um, environment. Right? If I tell you a story that is really, really, really old, if I try to give you, if I, if I try to explain the exact things in which the original story was told, you may not understand it. You may not, you know, because a lot of those things no longer apply. Right. It could be animals that used to be alive then there aren't anymore. It could be uh, um, environmental. It could be the weather. It could be, you know, names. It could be, you know, any number of things that were very present in that day, but are no longer relevant today. <laughs> right. Shakespeare, for instance, a lot of he tells story. In fact, Shakespeare is a great example of this. Right. Because Shakespeare took stories that were already really old. He did not create most of those stories. Right. Most of those stories he did not create. All right. He just took stories that were already being told and turned them into a way that was very theatrical. Right. That, that was very um, uh, amazing to look at and experience in a theater and all this other stuff. Right. And, and used, you know, specific uh, um, writing tools or, or, or rhythm. Right. That makes it very fun or engaging to, to, to communicate. But the fact is, a lot of that stuff no longer applies. Right. A lot of that rhythm um, doesn't really feel the same if it's done with that type of old Elizabethan age language because a lot of people don't talk like that today. So it sounds ridiculous, right? Imagine if, in fact, I might do this, try, try to do this project, right? If you try to use iambic pentameter, which, right, a lot of the rhythm that he uses in today's time, I imagine that it would be, uh, it would be a hit because that's what a lot of our rap, right? A lot of our hip hop, a lot of our music is based on. Right, it uses that sort of rhythm in in how you speak. Right, and in fact, a lot of orators, or a lot of the most popular orators, use this type of rhythm to make their speeches right more engaging. When I get into my flow, 
That's what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm using this rhythm to get people engaged, right? So <laughs> you can kind of feel that in really good speakers. But the point here is that you're conserving the important bits, right? The 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 wisdoms and the the flow maybe, right? You're important you're you're conserving the the bits that are actually important for you today and then recontextualizing it right and then putting it in a new form this is why oftentimes the best things that are the most innovative things and the most educational things are things that are mostly familiar but have a little bit of new information have a little bit of new abilities right talking about the innovators doing the most thing Right? It's no wonder that innovation happens with older technologies or technologies that are already commonplace. Right? What makes ChatGPT so um, so attractive to a lot of people is that it just uses the same type of technology that everybody uses today. Everybody uses a chat bot or chat box. Right? Everybody texts. Everybody uses messaging in some way, and everybody talks like a like regular. Right? They don't have to figure out. They're not. Most people are not trying to. You know, use uh, what you call it, uh, specific syntax in order to get the most out of Google. Right? <laughs> no, most people are just trying, just asking questions like they would in real life. This is why ChatGPT is so popular today. Right? Why natural language is so such a just a, such a powerful form of um, this type of technology because it uses the familiar, but in a new way. And this is what a lot of these oral languages, a lot of these conservative values uh, in these other cultures why they're so persistent because it takes a lot of those old traditional things things that everybody is used to things that everybody knows how to do or knows how to think about right but puts it in a little bit of a newer form so that you can see how it's relevant today if that was what conservative was conservatism was about in america or in these, in these global north i think it would be great but it's not in fact, it's almost the opposite in many ways. It almost, it almost always takes things that were very popular at one time, but is no longer relevant today, and then tries to make people keep liking those old things, <laughs> right? Regardless of the fact that our current environment is completely different than then. For example, the conservative value of you know masculinity, for instance, right? This is idea that for time immemorial, this is how masculine people uh, uh, um, behaved, and this is how feminine people behaved, right? But actually, a lot of that stuff is very, very recent, right? A lot of the ideas of masculinity, like you know the man going out to work every day, all day, you know, and providing for the family and stuff like that. Um, most of that is actually pretty recent. It actually happened with the Puritan cultures, right? These um, uh, Christian, you know, Protestant uh, cultures in the 16 to 1800s, right? Who had this work culture, right? Because they were coming over to America and they had to create a whole new land, essentially, right? And so it behooved them to create um, a culture where everybody did as much work as possible, especially the men, because there's a lot of physical labor that needed to be done. Right. So it behooved them to say, OK, men, you need to be working. You need to be working, working, working. Right. And women, you need to be cooking. Right? You need to be in the house. You know, um, and it behooved them to create that sort of culture because that's what the environment demanded at the time. 
right? I'm not even going to go into whether or not that was good or bad, but it was efficient for a lot of those people, right? But when things started to change, right, this behavior started to just be um, transplanted into the new things, into things like, you know, where you started having less physical work and more um, mental labor, right? You still had the same culture, even though it wasn't really applicable, right? Many of the, the first computers were women, <laughs> right? Um, but that ideology, right, was still held that, you know, women were were just meant for this type of um, um, behavior of, of, you know, just being in the house or taking care of things rather than, you know, doing this <laughs> mental labor, right? Um, but even, but before that, just going to show that this, this stuff is fairly recent, in a lot of cultures, right, prior to this puritanistic kind of culture, um, a lot of women did more physical labor than a lot of men, <laughs> right? Because they used sorts of tools that didn't demand um, so much upper body strength or something like that, right? Or at the same time, they were using, you know, uh, like in, for instance, Viking culture, right? A lot of the men will go out and do battle, <laughs> right? Um, while the women will do all the physical labor at home or the children and things like that, right? Or in um, a lot of hunter-gatherer cultures that were, that were hierarchical, right? The hierarchical hunter-gatherer cultures, they would force the women to do all the physical labor because the men, you know, um, were the ones that are a little bit more stronger and they could literally force women to do so. And furthermore, right, they had these patrilineal societies where instead of the women growing up with her, in the same family with her, you know, with her uh, mothers and grandmothers and and um, parents and, you know, all these folks, the woman would be taken to the man's family, right? And so if if the man, you know, at any time abused the woman, a lot of times the, the, the man's family would would either wouldn't be believe her or would say, oh, it's, it's, it's the man's business, right? <laughs> right, it's his business. We don't really know this woman or whatever, right? Um, but if he tried to do that, if if, uh, if the man tried to abuse the woman while they're at the woman's place, everybody would be like, what the hell are you doing? Like, <laughs> they would not allow that, right? So that sort of abuse was more common in these patrilineal societies. And so in these patrilineal societies that um, they could force the women to do all the labor, even when they were pregnant, right? This is also another reason why, you know, child mortality was so high. Um, but because the women could do nothing but labor and give birth, right? They weren't out there talking with other women. They didn't choose when they wanted to have children or anything like that. So it didn't really matter. They can just, you know, pop them out every year. Um, versus in, you know, these matrilineal societies where they can choose, hey, I'm going to get, I'm going to have a child in four years, right? Rather than every year, right? Um, but yeah, like the point here is that these uh, differences are not are not traditional, right? They're not super old cultures, right? Even in the, in the, in the, in America with these puritanistic cultures, like I said before, that stuff started changing, right? Um, when computers started coming out, or when um, the war, especially World War Two, right? That was a huge one, right? Where all, a lot of the men were being shipped off to war. Um, World War Two, uh, going rather I should say, going to Vietnam War and stuff like that, especially, and the the women, or World War One, Two, and Vietnam War, 
right? But the women were the ones doing the factory jobs and all this other stuff, right? Um, and yet, <laughs> even even with the women starting to do all the factory jobs and finally getting their liberation and things like that, there was still this conservative idea that women had to do housework and, you know, men had to do everything else or whatever. Or women, you know, had to do this sort of nurturing type of behavior and men did not, right? Even though that was not actually happening at the time, it was no longer really relevant. But because the conservative, you know, um, people were so powerful at the time, right? Like the, the Rockefellers, you know, the, the many of the, the rich folk, the powerful, the, the polit- politicians and things like that, they believed in this sort of thing. And in those households, they could, um, you know, establish that sort of thing, right? Because they didn't have to go, to, go off to war, <laughs> They could be the ones making the money in their big businesses and having their women, you know, do the cooking and cleaning, right? So in their in their environment, maybe that did, maybe that was relevant, but for everybody else, it wasn't. But because they were the powerful ones, right? They could conserve that ideology, even though it was no longer relevant for most people. And it's this difference, right? Is this um, this. What do you call it? Okay, I'm missing another word here. But this gap between reality and people's and, and people's conservative values is what you see today, right? With a lot of people realizing that we can't use the same conservative like these conservative values don't really make sense. They don't really apply to many people's situations, right? Um, a lot of women are not working. <laughs> a lot of women are now higher educate more educated than a lot of men right and, it's, and the, the difference is getting even more uh um stark now right where a lot of boys in school are not being taught well or you know they're not being related to well or they're just not doing good in school right and a lot of uh young men who are going to college are either not going to college or you know not really um being able to perform as well in college right and so they're not there's there's more and more women with more and more higher degrees or more degrees or whatever while a lot of men especially and this is a, a bigger difference in certain cultures like in a lot of uh black households and black communities and stuff like that where a lot of the men and, and young men and boys are you know disproportionately being criminalized more um and so they're not even having the chance to go to to school and things like that or to do much in school and so a lot of the black women you know, have way more, you know, uh, prospects than a lot of the black men. And because of that difference, right, you see that there's just not going to be (laughs) this reality where the men can make more money than the women. And so you have this very, very big um, disparity, there we go, right, between reality and these conservative values, these conservative traditions that our society in general still tries to cling to. And because of that, many men are lost, right? Many men are wondering, like, what the hell? Like, they think that their entire use, right? This still happens with my dad, right? It still happens with me in some ways, right? We have this idea that as a man, we have to be the provider. We have to be the protector, right? Even though in today's society, what are you protecting from, right? (laughs) And what are you providing, right? You don't have you're not most of the time you're not going to be making more than um 
the the woman, right? And there's still a pay gap. Don't get me wrong, right? It's not to say that there's no pay gaps or anything like. There's still pay gaps. It's not that women are getting paid more than men in the same jobs. Is that there's more women able to work or or performing more at work, right? Or getting jobs in period than men. But in in places where they like doctors and things like that, there's still a lot of men that get get way more pay than women, despite the fact that they have similar skills, right? That's still a problem. But the, but this is also you know a good you know point here, right? Is that you might see that a lot of people who do recognize some of this might say, oh, women, you know, there's no pay gap because there's women with higher degrees and women to get more jobs, right? But this, that's, this is where the critical thought comes in. And realizing that if you look deeper or actually look at what you're saying, this is not, you know, a one-for-one. One. Women, just because on, on the average, women might have more jobs or might be more employed does not mean that they're being paid more in those jobs, <laughs> Right? But because people don't, you know, think very much into what they're saying, they're just thinking that they're being unbiased or objective. They kind of just, you know, glaze over that and just kind of combine it all together. But this is why it's so important to have a, a good command of this critical thought skill, of this ability to. Or really, I would say think, right? Because I in elementary school, I'm not elementary school. In high school, my teacher always used to say critical thinking. Um, or it shouldn't be critical thinking. It should, it should just be thinking, right? Because this is how thinking works, <laughs> right? And what happens is when you're not thinking very well, you know, this is where all these other problems comes in from. My teacher always used to say that. And I always used to, you know, vibe with it. And I still do. But unfortunately, because a lot of people think that they're thinking, even though they're not, you have to, you know, add this extra thing of critical thinking, <laughs> Right. To get people to think about thinking. Right. Uh, a lot of people don't think about their thinking. They, they're not metacognitive. Right. They're not um, very self-aware. Like I said, they think they're being objective. They think they're being unbiased, apolitical. But in reality, they're just taking for granted a lot of the bias, terribly biased stuff that is specifically biased towards the hierarchy, biased towards these quote-unquote conservative values, right? Bias towards how we do things now or how we did things before, regardless of whether or not they're actually applicable to, 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 to today or whether or not they're actually efficient or even worse yet, whether or not we actually want them <laughs> to be, right? There's a lot of people that call themselves realists or practical that say, oh, this is how the, the world works today. And so like, like going back to, you know, my thing about... Um, giving people self-help advice with how to get girls or or how to make money right there's people that would say oh this is the, the this is the society we live in so shouldn't you learn how to live in that society right and i can see their point there but it's a bad point <laughs> right i can understand what they're saying there obviously as a person who's trying to live and survive in the society but the very unmistakable problem with that point right is that you're just supporting the system rather than trying to create a new one, trying to create a better one, right? If you're just learning, if you if you just want self-help advice on how to, you know, um, win, quote, unquote, right, in the society, get the girl, get the money, get whatever, right? Then what you're doing is is literally enforcing 
the society, right? Enforcing this system that's based on exploitation. And because you are using a system that is built to abuse things and exploit things, you too are abusing things and exploiting things or people. So by giving you self-help advice that shows you how to win at the system, how to win, right? How to get girls, how to make money, I'm actually teaching you how to exploit, <laughs> how to be exploitive, how to be abusive, right? A better way of doing this will be teaching you how to be a better person, how to think more, how to be more critical of the system, right? How to actually look at what you're seeing and not take that for, for, for uh, granted. This is why <laughs> when people say, oh, these leftists, you know, all they want to do is criticize, criticize this, that, and the other, whatever. Yeah, that's the entire point. Because the life we live is not a great life. And you see that too with, with uh, a lot of the, 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 the man problem, right? Is that a lot of men are committing more suicide. And this is another great thing I liked about the, the stream last night, an FD stream. They were talking about how a lot of women, there's more, more women um, attempt to commit suicide. Like four times more women attempt to commit suicide than men. But often they don't go through it go through with it because number one they tend to be more empathetic and number two right they tend to use methods that are that are more that are less you know um showy right less final right many men who commit suicide use a gun <laughs> right it's very hard to not to not go through with that or once you quit the that's it right there's no second thinking about it right versus many women who might, you know, use drugs or, you know, something like that. And um, those drugs can make a mistake or you, you can you can be like, oh, maybe maybe I shouldn't do this. Or um, or the, going back to number, point number one, many women realize that they don't want to make a mess. <laughs> right. Um, and in fact, this is my own reason why I didn't commit suicide. Like this is, <laughs> a couple of years ago. I think I mentioned this before, right? I was in a super dark place. I've thought about doing it many times. I was very close to a couple times. But then I kept thinking, oh, man, I, I don't want to leave a mess for my parents, right? Or for my, my mom specifically, right? I don't want her to blame herself, right? Like, I didn't, I, I was, I kept thinking, like, death, I don't deserve death. <laughs> I don't even deserve death, right? Because then that's going to cause more of a problem for all the people that I'm being that's being left behind and I think a lot of women you know also have this or it turns out right a lot of women also have this similar type of thought that stops them right so this goes back to what I was saying about um, just being more conscious and more aware of what you're actually saying what you're actually doing even in death <laughs> Right, because there's far more depth to everything that's out there. This is why, I also, why I really think that more people need to engage in philosophy, specifically things like Hegel. Right? I've been I've been looking into Hegel's stuff, and gosh, man, it's like every chapter, every section I get into, it's more and more relevant, which is crazy, right? And the core ideas, not the language, and that's that's unfortunately a big problem with Hegel is like the language is so. 
1800s uh, Germany that it's really, really hard <laughs> to parse through that to find, you know, the gold or to find the, the stuff that's that's relevant for today. But, you know, if you are interested, I highly suggest you go look up Greg, Gregory Sadler, right, his YouTube videos. He has an entire section or entire series where he just reads every single section of the of the book of, of Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit and breaks it down into today's language. So it's very easy to follow along. And I, in fact, I'm doing reactions of those videos as well. <laughs> so I'm reading through each section and watching it with, with Dr. Sattler or watching his videos on it and making my own, you know, um, uh, you know, translations and understandings of the thing. But anyways, um, some things I've learned in that is that like the dialectic process, right? The dialectical process is that um, Hegel often is being, you know, kind of, kind of, uh, or people reduce Hegel. People are reductive with Hegel, saying it's just dialectics, it's just, you know, synthesis or, or goodness, what did they say? Um, thesis, anti antithesis, and synthesis, right? That's his dialectic. But really, if you read the actual stuff, it's it's way more than that, right? It's this realization that everything that we look about, that we look at, that we think about. That we perceive and all this other stuff has more depth than what we see on the surface level, right? Like when you think about a concept, um, you might say, "Oh, that's the concept. That's what it is." But when you actually think about the concept, you realize that, "Oh, that concept is only that because of this other thing, right? Or because of you know how we see it in this other environment, or because of how it it was created over time, or any number of reasons, right?" Which is not exactly the anti it's not exactly the antithesis, right? You're not you're not often just looking at the other, right? The the opposite of it. You might be looking at its components, right? You might be looking at its history. You might be looking at how it how it interrelates with everything else, right? But all this will give you a greater detail into what it is, and then from that you can re-engage that, right, into your understanding of what it is today, right? You can analyze it you can break it down to its little pieces and then put it back together again and that will give you a better view of that thing and if you want you can go deeper right you can do that again <laughs> right into a cyclical you know um pattern but i'm not i'm not, i'm only in like the second chapter of the book so there's a lot more but um this this has really helped me to further um to further appreciate Right, this process of critical thinking, this process of, of thinking about thinking, and thinking about how we do things and how we think about things and, and so on. Right. Sorry, I'm looking at somebody. It looks like my brother. <laughs> I'm like, who's walking the dog? Um. But yeah, like when we think about the world, pretty much any concept that you have. Right, there's almost always going to be something deeper in it, and it really does us a disservice to to to, to keep taking things at face value, to keep assuming, oh, this person they say they're being unbiased, so they are, right? Or this person they seem like they're just taking both sides, so they are, right? In reality, there's almost always more than just two sides, and more importantly, the people who are just taking quote unquote both sides are almost always having their own bias. Towards a specific side or towards their own side, 
right? Which may or may not be, you know, at all good, right? It, it may be even worse than both sides or, you know, worse than one side or whatever, right? Even the, the idea of taking, quote, unquote, both sides itself, even at face value, is kind of ridiculous, right? Because oftentimes, both sides are not equal. One side will, oft, will very often be way more unbalanced than the other, right? Um, yeah, it's just, you know, it's important to think. <laughs> it's important to think. And I really hope and wish that more people take more time to think about the things that they um, take for granted, the things that they assume to be correct or assume to be, you know, the, the way of doing things or assume, even even assume that the, this is the way the world is. Because even if you think that, you know, you're just being realistic to how the world is today, again, 99 times out of 10, you're not. <laughs> 99 times out of 10, you're not even realizing that the way you see the world today is often just your perspective, just one small sliver of how the world actually is. All right, even if you think, you know, for instance, capitalism, right, is how the world is today. There's still a lot of people, a lot of places that don't partake in capitalism. And more importantly, there's still a lot of things at different levels in which this idea of capitalism itself is not even um, understood. Right. Many people don't even know what capitalism is. Right? They say capitalism is competition, even though <laughs> um, competition is almost antithesis to capitalism. Right? They say innovation is capitalism, even though uh, innovation is not at all, you know, a, a friend unless it's profitable. Right? It's it's it's, it's a contingent upon you know profitability and other things. Many people don't even know what capitalism is. So how can you say, oh, the world is, is, is capitalistic and therefore this is how you should do things, right? <laughs> because what you're actually doing is saying, oh, this is how I think capitalism works. And therefore, this is how I think I should go about the world <laughs> based on how my, my perspective on capitalism or my definition on capitalism. This is what a lot of these like, big billionaires are doing, right? They think that this is how capitalism should work. Right, they have a specific view of how capitalism should work or how the world should work, and they're, you know, trying to make the world in that image, even though that's not how the world actually works, or the consequences of that is very, very dire, or you know, a lot of people, you know, will be, um, will have the negative uh, consequences of of those actions, but they don't care because they have the power. This is why it's also it's so so important. For people to realize our our real you know enemies here, oftentimes people are so ready to throw other people under the bus and to side with the billionaires, to side with the side they perceive as winning, even though <laughs> in the end, you know, we're all going to pay for their consequences. Right? If the world comes to an end due to climate change, it won't be because the average person was, you know, trying to use their stove or buying a house. It's because these extremely powerful people were rigging the entire playing field, you know, a certain way. We're burning entire forests down to the ground. Right? We're poisoning all of our rivers and oceans and skies. 
And yes, the person who who sided with them, they're gonna have some, you know, <laughs> some uh, faults in that, of course. But the fact of the matter is that if the average person teamed up with the all the other average persons, right? Then that billionaire would have way less ability to do that, to do those things. And it's not just billionaires either. I don't want to just point them out. It's the it's the other people in power, right? It's the politicians. It's the the board members who may not be billionaires, but may still be millionaires or whatever, right? It's all the people that ha- actually have the power today to do all these things. Those people. Even though they have the majority of the power, they're still in the minority. And we need to learn to come together. Despite these differences, despite these perceived differences. That's another thing, right? What makes race such a a silly and powerful idea is that it takes these, you know, these uh, classist distinctions these traditionally classist distinctions and turns them into a seemingly very deep and in you know unbridgeable gap right it takes this oh you know it's the poor people who 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 are working under the sun who are you know you know <laughs> lesser than or whatever and then turns that into oh no these people who completely who look different on the surface they are a completely different type of people right they're not they're barely even people right and you can't be one of them and they can't be you and don't come together don't ever talk to each other right and if you do you know um exploit them right or see them as the enemy right but in actuality many of us have a lot of things in common despite what our physical appearances may be and it's not to also it's not to diminish, you know, the racial differences because what has happened is because this system was able to, you know, persist for, for hundreds of years now, we actually do have these very firm differences, right? The entire thing that makes the black community what it is, is not a community, right? It's the, it's, it's the fact that almost every single person in the world who has any sort of, you know, um, physical um, appearances... Or even non-physical appearances, right? Language and all these other things. Who have any of these appearances that the the ruling classes, right, don't like. Share this, this, this experience of being oppressed for no other reason than these physical or non-physical, you know, um, appearances that, you know, that class didn't like. Or just wanted to use as a method of separation of disenfranchisement right so to put that in simpler terms the entire reason why we have this idea of quote unquote black people is because we all share this experience of being oppressed for no other reason than you know some quite frankly trivial you know kind of differences the reason why you can't have you know, a white person say, a quote-unquote white person say that they're black now is because that quote-unquote white person will not have experienced these oppress- this, this oppression, right? So how can they be black, <laughs> right? They have no, there's no real threat to them. 
There's no um, way in which you know they will experience the same type of oppressions or the same types of risks, the same types of um, biases, right? That a traditionally you know quote unquote black person would have experienced. And yes, you do have black people who may not have experienced it, but they still have the possibility of, right? They still it's still likely there there is a possibility that somewhere sometime they will experience something like this. And furthermore, going you know looking at the white side, like I said in the I think two episodes ago, what a lot of white people share quote-unquote white people, is being able to benefit from this system. Even if you don't actually benefit, you still have the possibility of doing so. Right? And again, it's not your fault. <laughs> right? You didn't choose to be white. You didn't choose to be black. Fault is, is, is not even in the equation here. It's just the fact of the environment that was fashioned to keep people separated. To keep certain people disenfranchised And other people also disenfranchised But less so, a little bit less so Or at least on the appearance of less so Right And this is why I do have I do have empathy of course For people who also recognize that They're not black But they have experienced a lot of these same You know, oppressions Right A lot of the poor white people experience Many of these same things But even poor white people Right, if you raise in a country or wherever you're raised, right, will almost certainly still not experience the same type of oppressions that a poor black person will, will experience. You just won't. This is how the system is developed. This is why it's so important to recognize the importance of. Um, Understanding what race actually is Right It's a tool for separation It's a tool for oppression And you can't just say I don't see color It doesn't solve the problem Because it it doesn't matter whether or not you see color Everybody else does And even if they don't It still doesn't change the fact that we still have this history (laughs) Right We still have these consequences We still have this system Developed in that way Right. Well, now you see with with, for instance, algorithms. Algorithm doesn't see color, but it still has this bias. It still has this bias. Oh no. Okay, I'm still I'm still going. I gotta finish it. This is a turn on battery saver mode. I'm not ten percent. I gotta shut up. <laughs> um, but yeah, like they they still have this bias where it's based on data of oppression right it's based on this racist data and things like that it's based on this system where it's more profitable to create um you know discord to create um a a, a environment where it's um was based on you know spectacles is is based on being you know um what do you call it goodness we got the word too but based on you know just just being out there and and you know making fun of people or bashing people or you know saying this this you know exploiting the system essentially right it's more profitable 
to do so. And so these algorithms are also, you know, biased towards that method. We don't really have algorithms biased towards bringing people together. <laughs> All right. That's not profitable. All right. Because what are people going to do when they agree with each other? They have a good time and that's it. Right. Or you might meet in real life and get off the get off the, the service. And so you realize, oh, I don't actually need this service anymore. Right. Our entire system is not biased towards um, good things, towards um, creating an environment where we no longer need you know, to constantly consume, to constantly um, entertain, to constantly buy, right? It's not biased towards that. It's biased towards the other way, towards consumption and exploitation and so on and so forth. And so if we do not recognize that, then we will never be able to create a better system. We'll never be able to create a better society. This is why the whole project of the quote-unquote left is based on that. It's supposed to be based on that. But this is also why whenever you see people on the left just bashing people and all this other stuff, they're really not even understanding what the hell they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> right? This is why myself, I had this big different, like, you can see this change in my own content, my own ideas. Since before, I thought I had to be a trillionaire, right? I still in the URL of this podcast, trillionaire. Right, this was originally called Path of a Trillionaire or Thoughts of a Trillionaire. Cause I thought, oh, it's just the people in power that's the problem, right? I just have to get to the top of the system. I have to, you know, get myself to the point where I, I make a bunch of money, I make companies, I invent things and you know, I be on top and then and then I can help people, you know, show the right way. Cause I can I believe in my <laughs> you know, in the way I see the world, right? But the very problem with that is even if I am a good person, even if, right, you, you also think I am a good person, just the attempt to get up there isn't of itself going to be using this system that is constantly exploiting other people along the way, right? And even if I do get up there, even if I do, that's going to be temporary. I'm going to die, <laughs> right? This is the one, of the one of the other fundamental problems with hierarchy, even if you do have a great leader, even if you have several great leaders, there's always, always, always going to be some terrible leader, right? And that is going to bring everything crumbling down. Every single empire, every single hierarchical institution in the world throughout history has always failed eventually. And a lot of that, oftentimes, it was pretty disastrous when it did fail. And so now today, <laughs> we have this system where there's a whole lot of people on top. Some of them have better, you know, ideas of the world than others. But regardless of it, the externalities of their exploitation will come home to roost. The consequences of these actions, right, the fact that we can't constantly consume is going to come home to roost. And unfortunately... We all might go down with them. This is why it's so, so important, I think, to build a better world where nobody's in charge. doesn't matter how, how good you think you are. If you're a good leader, then let that be temporary. There's no position for good leadership. There's just a, a, a temporary thing that says, okay, do this thing, and now you're done. Right? That position itself goes away. 
This is why I really think that a lot of institutions itself should probably be gone. Because, you know, an institution will begin to have its own bias, right? Where people begin to be biased towards that institution, towards that structure, towards that idea, regardless of whether or not it's actually practical or actually, you know, good in that that current environment. This is why I, I myself have become more and more of an anarchist, <laughs> more and more left, more and more egalitarian, because I've realized that <laughs> the most efficient way of, of doing anything, right, is to create a system in which is is far more adaptable. And to create that system, everybody has to have their own chances, their own opportunities and to do things and to to create the world that they see fit. And the world that they create shouldn't be one in which other people are forced to live in. All right? That way, if they do have something successful, it can, you know, other people can decide for themselves whether or not they like that thing and apply it. But if it's not successful, it shouldn't, you know, affect a whole bunch of other people. Especially not a bunch of people that didn't even choose to live in that world. Right? Just simple math at this point, right? Simple <laughs> physics. The most successful system in a long span of time is that which is adaptable. That which can change. That which can, you know, take what's what's good about the current, you know, what it has and then apply it to whatever situation it's in. Simplifying that, of course, as always. Don't mistake the model, don't mistake the map for the geography, but, you know, you get my point here, I, I hope. But yeah, let me end it here before my phone dies. Crazy, crazy. I keep doing these long-ass podcasts. I've got too much to think about, man. I need to I need to write some more <laughs> and get back writing. I have another 20,000 word essay. <laughs> as always, let me let me know what you think. And thank you for thinking with me. Thank you for having... Um, Sorry, keep getting distracted. But yeah, thank you for uh, listening to this two-hour podcast. And um, hope you have a great day. Hope you are thinking and being awesome and creating a better world. And let's work together to do so as well. Thanks again and have a great day. See you. Bye-bye.